Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I want to dedicate this episode, this Torah learning in the merit of Rabbi and Rebetzin Cohen. May this Torah learning provide them the blessings of a peaceful and joyful and exciting and easy move back home to Israel. And I know when they get there, the impact that they will have on the community around them will elevate its holiness and the joy of all their neighbors like they have done for us in Houston. And I have good news for us here back in the States that even though Rabbi Cohen is making his aliyah back to Israel, that he will still be teaching for us at Torch through the power of technology. So we are delighted that we will still have him. The last time I had Rabbi Cohen on, we talked about the holy bris. And I shared the challenges I had and and how I learned the importance of this and, and how I sort of overcame these really bad habits that I created over the years. But what I didn't share with you was that during that period where I was wanting to cleanse myself of this, I approached my wife in the beginning and I said, would it be okay if we separated from one another? And she agreed. And as I went through this process of ridding myself of these thoughts and these, these unholy type urges, I was actually afraid to be with my wife in this way again. You know, I had my wife on a few episodes ago on a podcast titled, We Were Made to Be Addicts. And my wife spoke about how she is a recovering alcoholic. And the one thing I have learned with her through this process is that when someone is abusing alcohol, it permanently alters and changes the way their brain operates so that they can never have a drink ever again. One sip and they would resort back to being in the ways of an alcoholic and and abusing alcohol. And that's the way I was sort of thinking about myself. I had abused this area and I was afraid to go back. I didn't want to ignite those feelings once again. And I was reading the Shekona Rukh that there are a lot of mitzvot around ways of doing this in a holy manner with your spouse. I, I know in the Ketubah, the man has a requirement to engage in these type of relations. You know, my wife and I are past the point of, in our lives, of, of having children. And it seemed like, what is the purpose of it if it's not creating children? Now, I, I will segue off to a different subject quickly. For those of you who are not aware of this, but back before we became religious, we had one child, blessed with an amazing daughter. And we thought, since I was in control of my livelihood, that'd be best just to have one to make sure we had the resources to take care of her and us. So I went and had a vasectomy. What I will tell you, if, if you do not know this, is I learned that that is prohibitive. That is not permitted in Torah for a man to go get a vasectomy. Now, I did inquire with my rabbi, Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, about this, and he had to run this up the flagpole for, I want to be clear on this, my unique situation. And the ruling came back that it was not necessary to reverse it. But that's not necessarily the case for all. So I want to encourage any of you who are looking at proper birth control that you 
find, if you don't have one, a Torah-observant Orthodox rabbi and get counsel in this area. But back to my original point. It seemed like such a mundane act, and I, and I was afraid to engage back in it again because I was afraid it was going to send me back into that mindset I had before where I was just full of lust all the time. And that's not the case. That's not the way we're supposed to approach it. Last week, I had Rabbi Linter on to talk about infusing holiness into the mundane. And that's really what this is about as well. There's a way to do this in a, in a holy way that God wants us to participate in this activity. So I brought this question up at the end of that episode with Rabbi Cohen on the Holy Briss. And he said, hey, this is way more than I can fit in now. This is an episode unto itself. So I am delighted that he came back to teach us on this very important topic and shed some light on it for all of us. So thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for being here. Great to be here, Dan. I hope not to shed too much light, just what we can take. Because when we go into the rabbit hole, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And it might not just be one episode. It might take a few. Well, we'll we're going to fit those in. And even if you're in Israel, we will coordinate a time and still be able to do this together, God willing. Great. So today we're talking about the bedroom. We did speak in the last segment that we did that we look at the home as being a holy temple. In terms of infusing the mundane with spiritual, we always want to elevate those things. And we actually, as a definite corresponding elements of the house to that of the temple. And so just like, let's say, a person's table where he has guests at his table is considered to be like the altar in the holy temple. And when a person lights candles for the Sabbath or the holidays, that is like the candelabra. And the kitchen would be called the slaughterhouse where the sacrifices were offered. And then, of course, we have the Holy of Holies, the bedroom, which is called the Holy of Holies. So meaning the act of intercourse is always known in Judaism as the holiest of acts. The way that we were raised in Orthodox tradition, which wasn't me in the beginning, but in my second lifetime, which was when I was 18 years old and put into a yeshiva in Jerusalem, Of course, the way that it is done basically these days is there's not much education that you can give to a single man before the wedding in terms of, let's say, how and what a person is to to behave properly in terms of when they're in the act of intercourse. The upbringing and the experience or the education of most single guys before they actually get married, because they're single, they never had intercourse before, they weren't running around bars, and they're whatever it is that's going through their minds and that they're clueless. And of course, they have to go into some private sessions with a rabbi to tell him them the do's and don'ts of relations. Okay, and there are do's and don'ts of relations and the optimal value of it. So we're going to go through some of that. And like I said, it's only a tip of the iceberg. So, okay, they give you the rundown and they give it to you in one, two, three classes. It's real fast. And they maybe give you some other sources that if you want to go ahead and delve into. But you're basically married. You're down the aisle under the chuppah. And then you're, you're off on life's course. And very few people get to go back and really study these texts about in terms of what we're supposed to be doing and what we're supposed to be thinking. Everybody has basic knowledge, bottom line, but nobody has really deep knowledge. So God willing, we are going to solve the world's problems today. And I'm going to tell you why. My father-in-law, Baruch Hashem, he did a 
translation and commentary on a section of the Zohar, which is the esoteric commentary of the five books of Moses. The esoteric commentary, meaning it is the Kabbalah, it is the mystical way that we view the text of the Bible, that you would look at them surface and it would say X, but then there's much, much, much deeper meanings that goes on in all of the text that you'd see in your typical five books of Moses, any verse. For example, the verse here that he's going to show, he's going to say, when a daughter of a priest shall be to a strange man. So that's a very common question. The rest of the verse says, if a daughter of a priest goes to a strange man, she's not no longer able to eat of the sanctified food of the Cohen family, of the priest's family. In other words, when she's a member of the family, the priests have certain consecrated food they eat. While she's a member of that household in dad's home, she can eat that special food, that's tithed food. And then when she leaves, she marries somebody who's not a priest. She was now going to... She can no longer eat that food. That's basically the line. But there's much deeper. We're going to get into this. That he says, this is not what you think it is talking about. It is talking about the soul. All of our souls were in this unbelievable sublime place in the cosmic realm once upon a time. And then what happened was God basically appointed us to go into a certain body. That is the deeper meaning, actually kind of a deeper meaning, of when when a daughter of a priest, meaning the soul, shall be to a strange man, meaning it's not really the body, but I'm going to describe what that is in a second. It's something deeper. It's talking about the soul. The entire Torah really is talking about the soul. In this discourse that my father-in-law translated and commented on, this beginning of this talks about what's called the oppressed soul. There's something called an oppressed soul. What does that mean? So, The text goes on to saying, basically, woe to the person. It says, woe to the person who does not know how to take care. And they answer, meaning, what does that mean? The person who does not know how to take care. That means the person does not know how to have the right intentions when he is having relations with his wife. Actually, it goes to both, okay? Man and woman, in terms of what they were thinking about or what they were doing in the act of intercourse. And it's going to describe something pretty amazing here. So it says that when two people are together having relations, they are drawing down a soul. And let's talk about, first of all, take a little bit of a backtrack. You said, beginning, Dan, that the reason why we have intercourse basically is, of course, to have children. But then there's another reason why we have intercourse. The Hebrew term is called onah. Onah literally means her time. That's what it means, her time, which means time to be together. So whether you're going to have children or not having children, if you're having intercourse, even for not for the sake of having a child, there's still an unbelievable spiritual creative expression that is happening, a creative function that is happening at the time of relations. And I'm going to bring from the Arizal, this actually comes at the end of this book called Living Kabbalah by the teachings of Rabbi Raphael Moshe Luria, which is a descendant of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, who was the famed master Kabbalist in the 16th century. At the end of this book, he says, I really didn't want to do this, and I had a really huge dilemma to write what I'm about to write. He says, but 
I felt I have to, and if people don't want to read this book and look at it for this reason, then fine. But he says, I have to, for the sake of the connection to the infinite light, because it's very important in terms of this idea, because it is so creative. Once again, it's the Holy of Holy stuff. So it says here, the Arizal teaches that God gave man the ability to use his sperm in order to create a holy soul. Thus, whenever a man has sexual contact with his wife, at the time that she is ritually clean, that's a big caveat, ritually clean, that means she's, she's not in her menstrual cycle and she's gone to the mikveh, which is called the ritual bathhouse. Whether the union engenders a child or not, he is creating a soul of holiness. If the union is not to produce a child, this soul then joins others in what the Kabbalah calls the palace of souls. Some people call it the goof. Some people call it the heichal neshamot, the palace of souls, this reservoir. When it is the man's time to die, that person, these souls come out to meet him and speak on his behalf. They are referred to as his children. In other words, you thought you just had your child. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. These souls join the powers of holiness, thus doing their share to fulfill the ultimate purpose of creation. In other words, they do participate in the ultimate purpose of creation. And as such, they will continue to receive spiritual sustenance from heaven for every divine creature, every divine creature, even a spiritual one, needs sustenance to exist. Now to go to the flip side... However, when a man misuses his sexual energy by using his sperm for anything other than intimate contact with the woman who is rightfully his wife, under the holy bonds of matrimony, whether he is a Jew or a Gentile, intentionally or accidentally, he also creates a soul. But she, we'll call it the soul, joins and gets caught in what we call the powers of evil, or we'll call it the klipot the husks, the shell. These souls are referred to as a man's shovavim, his quote-unquote different kind of children. We call them rebellious children. Since these non-physical children do not fulfill a function in the purpose of creation because they're stuck and they cannot express their God-given rights, expression, they do not receive spiritual sustenance from heaven to ensure their existence. And as we shall see, thus have to draw living energy by attracting themselves the sustenance earned by the man who fathered them. In other words, even when you're having when you're having relations, there is still a child born, even if you're not having it to the, for the sake of having a child. But now here's what really smacked me in the head: that when the parents, if they do not take care in terms of when they have intercourse, what they do is they're drawing down a soul. Let's say they're doing it for the sake of having a child. They are drawing down a soul, but this soul, when it comes into the body, it does not come without what is called a soul garment. We call it in Hebrew, a lavush. So here's the language of my father-in-law. When the soul is drawn down into this world, it is never entirely cut off from its roots in the tree of life and in the world of soul. Consequently, that part of the soul that does descend into this world and enters into a body is really what we'll call, quote-unquote, extension of the root 
that is in the soul world. Not only is it an extension, but the part that is left above in the soul world is much, much greater qualitatively and quantitatively. In other words, you do have existence in other realms that we are not aware of, while the later extension of the last part of the extension of our soul is in our body. Okay? So the soul is drawn down into this world when the parents engage in intercourse. That is why the parents must sanctify themselves physically and mentally as much as possible in order that the child that will be born will have a correspondingly high soul and a pure Body. This is accomplished by following the laws of family purity, zivug, and setting their minds in the proper mode, as we're going to see. So people who do not follow those rules and whose minds are set only on the physical pleasures of intercourse, only on that. It's not that you can't be in the physical pleasure, but there's other things to contemplate. The people who are only on the physical pleasure of intercourse will insinuate a large amount of evil influence into the body of the child that will be born. The evil influence or evil inclination the Saba calls the strange man. That is the strange man. When her daughter of a priest will be to a strange man. Daughter of a priest is soul. Be to a strange man, which means that the parents did not take care when they were having intercourse. And therefore, this soul gets encased in what we call the strange man. Or we get to call that the garment. And woe to the people of the world who do not know how to take care. They draw down the supernal soul together with this strange man. Now, there's in Sefer Tanya, it brings down a little bit more clearly that he brings down. This is in uh, part one, uh, the end of chapter two. It is written in the Zohar and Zohar Hadash that the main factor depends upon a person sanctifying himself especially during sexual union, which is not found among common people. That's the problem. You're going to see where I'm getting to in a second. And this is because there is no nevish, ruach, and neshama that does not have a garment, a levush, from the nefesh of the essence of the father and mother. Now, what is this levush? Now, so step one, you are introduced to a new character in the play. You thought it was just soul and body. Uh Uh-uh. There's this mystery garment called the lavouche or the garment. Now, what is this garment? So the next point was all the mitzvot that he does are through this garment. Again, all the mitzvot that he does is through this garment. In other words, the opportunity to do mitzvot, good deeds, come from the garment and the consequences of fulfilling or transgressing mitzvot, react upon this levush, this garment, to enhance it or ruin it. In other words, it could be ruined if a person goes against the rules. He goes against the the laws, of, the spiritual laws of creation, the Torah. So therefore, you can erode a person, God forbid, can erode that garment. Very important, right? Even the shefa, even the illumination that is given to him from heaven, it is all through this garment. This garment is a total conduit vehicle. So everything that he has, his character traits, his mazel, his destiny, his luck, his special providential blessings, and his troubles, they all come through the lavush. Now, if he sanctifies himself, in other words, the father, he will draw down a holy lavush for the soul of his child. This lavush is the interface between the soul on the one hand and the physical body 
and world on the other end. All souls must function in this world to accomplish their mission in this world through the interface called the garment, the lavush, which is also called the tselem, which is like the tselem elohim, the image of God. If the garment is pure, fine, and holy, then the activity of the soul in this world will be efficacious, meaning the person will be able to express their mission and their destiny very easily. On the other hand, if the lavush is gross and crude, then the soul will have a hard time accomplishing her mission in the world. Boom. So even a great soul requires the sanctification of the father. So therefore, the father plays a huge significant role, and the mother as well, in terms of what they are thinking. Why are they uniting? What is their intention? Of course, when everybody looks at that, what is the first reaction? I'm curious. Dan? I've learned that when one dies, that if they have not done mitzvot, they, their soul, the soul feels unclothed and naked. And through the mitzvot one, the way I understood it was they earn this garment. But it sounds like they come into the world with the garment. And then by not keeping mitzvot, by sinning, they begin to remove the garment which is what causes the soul to feel naked when it is pulled from its body. Is that accurate? Yes, very good. There's more to talk about that, but not now. It's too scary. Okay. But the idea here is, you know, when I think about that, I'm like going, dude, okay. First of all, what he says that it's not found among common people. The idea of sanctifying the parents have to sanctify themselves. This is something very, very divine and very, very profound. And if you don't have the right thoughts... So now you, I instantly thought, well, gee, I look at myself. I look at all of the obstacles. I look at my evil inclination on all the issues that I have with my character. And I now, 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 take a step back here. Don't even think of going to your parents and going, what were you thinking about me? Okay. <laughs> what were you thinking about? Okay. Don't you dare. Because the world doesn't know this. And the idea here is, and it's sad that the world does not know this, what we're going, what we're about to embark on, this study. But basically, I look at it, this whole planet as being what's called planet oppression. Because every single person, I'm, come on. I mean, there are very few people who actually know how, know these texts and know this technique in order to bring children who are that holy, who can express their ultimate mission in this world. We're all stuck. That's the bottom line. We all have these lavouche, and our parents not necessarily were thinking the most holy thought. So therefore, it's meant to be. God wants us to have this challenge. God, okay, you got your lavouche, you're an oppressed. Welcome to planet oppression. Men to this side, women to this side. And here's your little package. Here's your little bad meadows. Here's your challenges. Go. That's basically our thank you very much. I'm going to have a Muna. It's meant to be. It's meant to be. So what you're saying is that I've always been taught that everyone comes into the world with a perfect Mido, those they need to work on, and, and others in between. And what you're saying is that what causes that is the the lack of the garment or the the maybe improper thoughts that your parents had during your conception. Yes, yes. Yes. The plus or minus of it. In other words, how refined. And then if you're really refined, then you'll be a, you'll be on fire. You'll come down. I'm telling you, and 
you'll be a, this unbelievable wave of influence, beacon of, of tremendous influence and energy, and you'll be able to express the soul will not be impeded to express itself in this world. But of course, because there wasn't most likely, I'm not saying all over the world, I know there's some Kabbalist people who know this, but for the most of the part of the world, they weren't thinking the Holy of Thoughts, so therefore they created the impediment for that soul to express itself. But isn't that the whole purpose of this life is that we do have bad meat we're born with, and then the mission becomes to fix them. So if someone's born in a, in a very pure way, their, their purpose here becomes sort of taken away from them. Okay, you're right. I hear what you're saying. So therefore, we should close the book and end the podcast. But obviously, these are texts written down because as much as we're here, thrown and cast down into a imperfect world with imperfect character traits, we're, we have to in, be engaged in what's called tikkun olam and fixing the world. And the ultimate idea would be to fix the world. Now, wouldn't you agree to fix the world would be to study what to do, even if you're not having children, what to think about, because definitely those people who are still in the intention of ha- bringing down children, don't you think it would be important for them to know this so that they would bring a child into the world that would be able to express greater light? Yes or no. So therefore, it would be really worthwhile for the world to know these t- this, and therefore, we would affect a greater influence on the world. We're supposed to bring more light here. Okay, you want to be in the guy that, with the camp who wants to keep us in the dark? I don't know about that, because it gets pretty dark, and that's not the function. God gave, put us into an imperfect world in order to make it better. You have a fruit tree. If the fruit tree sits in the yard, it will produce fruit. But if you if you prune it, you fertilize it, you water it, it produces better fruit. So we're here to produce better fruit. Got it? Makes sense. So then the big question is, when you read that, you're going, oh, okay, we have to sanctify ourselves in the bedroom. What does that mean? Really? Sanctify myself? Sanctify? What does that, what does that mean? What does it entail? So there's levels. We're going to start with the basic physical levels, physical things that have to exist in the bedroom. And then it's going to get into much more and probably not time for this podcast, but it's going to get into much more deeper realms in terms of what you are thinking, what you are creating, and then how this one act can mommish bring a ultimate, even in the micro form, in the micro form can bring a huge creative influx into this world, a huge spiritual influence into this world, if done properly. It's practice. The spiritual purposes and dynamic of sexual union require certain conditions that will permit the flow of holiness to permeate the relationship of husband and wife. These conditions also prevent the flow of sexual energy into the domains of the ungodly or and the anti-god. Welcome to the realm of darkness. And believe me, this is the main thing the realm of darkness wants to get, as we see it. So, the conditions of a, 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 to have to flow, you need certain conditions in order to permit the flow of holiness, to permeate the relationship of husband and wife. And when you do that, you also prevent the flow of sexual energy into the domains of the ungodly and the anti-god. The biggest thing that is exploited and perverted is sex. It is out there, unbelievable. I, it's un- incredible. The uh, pretzus, what we call it, the, the fences are broken in terms of how people are behaving. It's always been like that. 
but now it's just so accessible and it's so dangerous because they want to take that sexual energy because it is, it is their big diamonds. It's the biggest bucks for the dark side. There is a dark side. God created it. He does. Listen, he's in charge of everything. He created it for a reason. He created it in order for us to have free will, all for that purpose. It's like going to the gym. You have to have weights and the weights do get heavy. So behold, God is one and the ultimate unity of all things. In contrast, the domains of the the ungodly and the anti-God are called the powers of divisiveness. That's an interesting word that my father-in-law, Zechuso Yegenu called it divisiveness. I don't know exactly how maybe you would give a definition of it. I think divisiveness means split, divide, separation. Because the whole idea of the Nachash, of the serpent in the Garden of Eden... He did see Adam and Eve, by the way, having relations in the garden. He did want to have Eve for himself. That's why he was trying to get rid of Adam so he can have Eve. So he entered with words to try to separate between Eve and Adam. The Nachash, and wherever you see in the world where there's this kind of divisiveness, you'll know right away, those are the powers of the dark forces, trying to always make a split. The general purpose of the act of union is to unite one and to draw close to the Holy One, blessed be He. How do you like that? It would be self-defeating to allow the act of union to feed and enlarge the powers of divisiveness, the dark forces. So if you do it with the wrong reason, you're actually feeding them or giving them a source of energy that they plug into you and they're able to, like the matrix, you become their battery. Therefore, it is important that the union takes place in the right way at the right time and in the proper setting. So we go into the law books, which is called the halakha, which promote proper conditions and directly relating to the act of union. And they're basically maybe classified into these groups. So we're going to go through some of the basic laws just for the listeners that they can actually just start because I'm not going to hit them with a bombshell. We're not going to go into it. But first, you have to just know there's certain basic things. So union is really, the first category, right, is really four categories. The first category, union is only really permitted between a husband and wife. They have sanctified themselves, and each one has sanctified is sanctified to the other. When you go under the chuppah, you're limiting yourself, because you're saying, the, man, the woman is saying, I am no longer available to any other man except you. And you are saying, I'm no longer available to any other woman. You have limited yourselves underneath that canopy, it's amazing that my Rosh Hashiva, Zechusa Yenalena, we always said, only when you would draw a line do you get to see God. Then you're allowing a space for God to come in when you separate yourselves from the rest of the world. So in other words, it's got to be what we call commitment. Oh, that nasty four-letter word that everybody's so afraid of. Consequently, their union is sacred because they have only dedicated themselves or committed to each other. Any other union is in the first place, even before it starts, in the domain of the other powers, the Sitra Achra, the other side, the dark side, the realms of divisiveness. Interestingly enough, he brings a little note here to go off PC. Homosexual relationships have nothing to do with union, which is uniting two opposites together. And they obviously cannot fulfill the purposes or requirements of sanctification. They are a what we call a tower floating in the air. It's a whole nother topic. In other words, don't think that homosexual relationships are holy. The first category of halacha, therefore, has to do with who is permitted to marry whom. That's number one. In other words, who are you permitted to be with? 
I'm a Cohen. I'm not allowed to marry a divorcee. Uh, these are the, all the rules that are set down in the five books of Moses. Who can marry and who you can't marry. Like a uh, aunt cannot marry a nephew. Things like that. Many, many different relationships. The second category is what we'll call nida or mikvah. That we know basically that a woman, when she's in her menstrual cycle, according to the Torah, you're not allowed to be with your husband at the time. There is a lack of life energy that is flowing through. And therefore, at that time, that lack of life energy is flowing through. The Torah prohibits relations and the woman has to go into the mikvah to ritual bath and then she becomes in a new state. She becomes totally renewed and then have relations with her husband only in those times. And the third category deals with the proper setting and time, which is probably more very apropos for some people who have no clue about what that is. So here's an abridged version. Sexual union is prohibited under any direct light, including the light of a candle. In other words, you can't have any lights on in the room. You can't have a direct light. If it's coming from the closet, the bathroom, or any other place, that's fine. But you cannot have any direct light, even a candle, in the room. If no other place is available, listen to this law. If no other place is available except a room where there is light, there is a light or candle burning, and let's say it's Shabbos, because you can't extinguish the flame, then union is not permitted at all. You cannot have relations. And the deepest idea here is because when there is a light in the room, I don't understand completely, but if this is where the forces of darkness are able to plug in and take from it. Whether it's through your psyche, her psyche, by the fact that there's light, it somehow enables them to get in. And then they take that energy. The idea really here is also that a person should be covered. You have to be covered. A man is obligated to unite with his wife on the night that she immerses in the mikvah. Okay? In other words, if she comes back from the mikvah, there is a mitzvah to have relations on that. And a woman should not seek to punish her husband by reframing from immersion in the mikvah. Okay? In other words, I'm not going! She's not allowed to do that. There was one case in the Gomorrah where this guy... He was very, I have to say the word, abused by his wife. And the other, his friend was sitting around there, you know, and he asked for a cup of coffee and, and she brought him tea. And it was cold. The other friend goes like, how do you take this? How do you, take this? you know, she screams at you, she hollers, she gives you criticizing you all the time. So the guy turns to him and he says, she saves me from Gehenna. What do you want? In other words, I have a spouse to have relations with and I don't, God forbid, spill my seed in the wrong way. So a woman, it's a very huge mitzvah for a woman to be open for that. If the man is all of a sudden overcome with desire and lust, she shouldn't say, I'll go take a cold shower and run around the block. Because she has to also know that she is a partner in this. And that the husband, if he is so overcome with urges that he cannot overcome, and she would hold back and he would otherwise do something not good, not kosher, spill his seed in another way, then she is culpable for that as well. So a woman, a real righteous woman, will make sure that if her if, if it's that kind of situation, yes. Okay, the husband also has a responsibility. He can't be, you know, he has to also, can't let his, his lusts run a wild. It's a responsibility on both of them. It's always the best option that the man is able to overcome his urges. It is true. But there are situations where the woman, uh, you know, has to has to be available. So, because if she holds back and not goes to the mikveh, he sins because of it, she's uh, partially responsible for that. It's a, this, is, this is number four. A man should not engage in union while he is thinking about another woman, even if she is 
also his wife. That's in the days where you can have multiple wives. You can't be with Rachel thinking about Leah, with Leah thinking about Rachel. You have to be thinking about, and you can't be thinking about your imaginary mistress either, because she's really Lil in disguise. You have to understand that, but we'll get into that later. Neither should one be drunk at the time of union, no drinking. He should not force himself upon her or enter her while she's sleeping. The mind should be favorable to one another, and they should both agree. Of course, rape is out of the question. They should not be quarreling or angry at each other at the time of union. If they were quarreling or angry, they should appease one another and arouse love, you know, make up sex, and affection before beginning union. In other words, you can't have relations when you're angry. Either, both of them. I think my grandmother, she was amazing. Alea HaShalom. She told about her grandparents that had above their bed all arguments settled here. It was like on the wall above their bed. Maybe in Yiddish because they came from who knows where, Russia or something. All arguments settled here. It could mean a lot of things, but that's what she told us, meaning you can't go to bed angry. He should not unite with her if he has already made up his mind to divorce her. I know cases like that that actually happened. It was terrible. Three o'clock is the appointment for the divorce to get the get. And he says, well, might as well have one more time. You are not allowed to do that. Weird as it is. Yes, it is possible. It is done. I'm telling you a true case. So you can't be thinking I'm going to divorce this woman while you're having a relation. Union is prohibited out of doors in streets, gardens, orchards, but it should be done in a house. In other words, get a room, buddy. It is prohibited to ejaculate in any place, manner, or way except in that place. We call it hamakom. Uh, there are certain kulas to that if there are different situations that we'll get to later. Okay. But basically, you're not allowed to thrust when you're in and ejaculate outside because you don't want to impregnate her. Exactly. That's what Er did. Er and Onan were the two sons of Yehuda, and they both died. Er did not want to impregnate her, so basically what happened was he just ejaculated outside. So he wouldn't impregnate her because she was beautiful. He didn't want her to lose her beauty. And Onan, he just didn't want to keep his brother's line going. So he did the same thing. It is prohibited for him to masturbate. They must be careful about any practices which might result in ejaculation outside the vagina, that it should not become habitual. In other words, there are situations where it happens, where there is those premature ejaculations. These kind of things do happen. But, you know, you don't do practices where it's going to be habitual, where you will ejaculate outside. And in terms of, let's say, I think you mentioned before, Birth control. Very, very, the rabbis are very, as a matter of fact, I haven't seen anyone give any kind of permission for a person, a man to have the tubes tied or the man to wear a condom or whatever other kind of form for the man, for the man. The women, unfortunately, we haven't figured something else out, has the, all the manners that of, of birth control and uh, my wife is, is a very big expert in that that can help anybody out if you want to contact us. Ten. Okay, she on top and he on the bottom is considered haughtiness and is prohibited, actually. We, now we have a different halacha nowadays. I'm going to tell you right now, bottom line, there's a different law. Basically, nowadays, because there's so much pritzis, trying to find the right word for pritzis, there's so much promiscuity in the world that is so rampant and so out there. Basically, m- many rabbis permit a lot of things in order that you and the wife are happy. Because it's better that you're with each other, whatever position in bed, than you go outside and seek it. So a lot of rabbis permitted it in terms of, let's say, positions, of course. There's the classic military position. But 
like I said, the rabbis nowadays, and I don't know when that happened, but because of the preachers, they say it's better for a man to be with his wife and enjoy whatever possibilities than go and seek it elsewhere. But some say it is only prohibited on the night of immersion for the woman to be on top. I'm just reading from the text. Or at any night where she can become impregnated, because obviously the rule is that we want her to become impregnated, and if she's on top, the seed is not going to remain in there. Some say it is permitted, but only if she immediately turns over to allow the semen to flow naturally. It is prohibited to unite in a room where there are holy books, or tefillin, definitely a safer Torah. Right. If no other place is available, then the holy book must be covered with two wrappings. Put two blankets on those holy books. Twelve. They should not act haughtily or foolish with each other, nor should they speak words of silliness or vanity with each other. Actually, that doesn't really apply nowadays. You do whatever it takes. I'm telling you. Even though that what we're gonna, what I'm gonna say right now is gonna be kind of surprising to you. Concerning this, it is said, even the idle talk of a man and wife will be played back to them at the time when they meet their maker. I saw this and I laughed last night because I can imagine at the time where a person leaves this world and they sit in front of the throne of glory and God's got a little cassette tape machine and he goes, listen to this. Plays back. Oh gosh, I was saying that at that time. Listen to this. And he has like, you know, 30,000 tapes. How about this one? How about this one? How about this? Anyways, okay. (laughs) And they're old cassette tapes, which like don't exist anymore. It's not digital. So you got to wait for him to like fudge with it in the machine and turn it over and rewind. Can you, I can imagine, you can imagine that. And there's a base den sitting around. Okay, okay. The idea really here is rather they should converse with each other about love, about passion, about fear and awe of God. That's what we're getting about. And love for tzaddikim. The tzaddikim, the holy righteous people, their goodness and their holiness and all their deeds should be permeated with a desire to draw close to God. We'll get more of that later. It should be a meditative, it should be a meditation, a passionate meditation. Hard to do because the the forces of, of divisiveness, they want to split the act with the emotions and the love and the connection. They want to just get in there and just make it a holy, you know, make it something outside and external. But it has much more. We have to bring it much more to the realm of passion, love, connection. That it all really comes out to be a connection of all humanity with the divine. Just as they must be careful about their conversation, they should also be careful that their thoughts do not stray into lewdness and immodesty. Once again, there's a lot that goes into the thoughts. And once again, this is training. We'll do baby steps. 14. It is commendable for a man to extend the time that he lies upon her in order to increase her delight and satisfaction. Because, of course, she has to be happy. As we say, there's two times of relations. If you're having a child, and then there's what's called ona, her time, her time, not your time, her time, that she has to have a delight. This can't be one of those, uh, I hate to say it, but I come from that world, a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Even though there is, she has to get aroused. So it's very important and that and that she has delight and satisfaction. And this requires training. This requires a practice. And a lot of people don't have... What do they have? What do they have to educate them? Hollywood! It's terrible. It really is. That's why you and me are now involved in what we call tikkun olam. We are fixing the world. The more people get this and more educated in this and practice this, then we'll bring a holier light into this world. But if this will lead to his thoughts straying, but if he's hanging around too long, let's say, and there's lots more to say about each one of these are tips of the iceberg, but if it will lead 
to his thoughts straying to lewdness or immodesty, then it is commendable for him to finish as soon as possible. But of course, the ultimate idea is to have the spiritual, emotional connection. But of course, if he's going to lead to something immodest or something else, which I'm not even clear on what it, he's alluding to here, then you, you finish as soon as possible. In general, number 15, and this is the last one. In general, union is holy and intimate, and it should be done with awe and modesty. The couple should not draw undue attention to themselves. I'm not clear on what that means. But when we speak about modesty in general, and even I thought about it before I was religious, you know, that if I, if I, you know, whatever it is, boyfriend and girlfriend shouldn't be all lovey-dovey out in public. And usually most Orthodox men and women are not that. They're not totally infatuated with each other and tickling and touching and hugging and kissing till somebody's going to say, what? Get a room! So basically, you know, we're not, even holding hands really in public is really not done. People do it. I've seen it. But really it should not because it's going to draw attention to yourselves. Now, that's a weird thing. What's wrong with drawing attention? You don't want to draw the attention of the external forces. And part of those external forces, which is called ayin hara, evil eye. That means somebody could be jealous. So therefore, we keep things modest. And then when you're in public, you could touch. Okay, you hug. Maybe, you know, but not, not none of the smoochy moochy stuff. No smoochy moochy. So that was three categories, basically. The first one was, with whom are you married to? Whom it's permitted, according to the dictates of the Torah. Category number two was Nida and Mikvah, the ritual bathhouse. Number three was the proper setting, right? No lights, have to be covered, can't be angry, can't be drunk. The fourth, which is just the tip of the iceberg, and this is where we'll end it, is called the proper mental setting. So there is a book from the Ramban called the... Um, Actually, I have it called, actually, it's translated called the, the Igert Kodish, or what we'll call, translated to the Holy Letter, which basically has to do with what do you think and how do you behave in terms of in the actual act itself. And this goes on for quite a bit. There's a whole book on it, and I got another book, and then there's another book, and there's a lot of text to go over these kind of things. Lots more to talk about, like I say, tip of the iceberg in terms of what you think about. I have a few follow-up questions. You mentioned time. When is the appropriate time? Is there appropriate day during the week? Okay, I'm so glad that you asked. That is a great question. We were going to get to it later, but since you mentioned it, now they are, everybody knows in the from world, Friday night is mitzvah night. Friday night, Shabbos evening, okay, is mitzvah night. That means you get to have relations. It's not necessarily so. They do say that scholars would only have it one day in the week, which would be Shabbat. And specifically, they would have it on after midnight. After midnight, because that's where the huge, holiest souls are available to draw down. Because the holiest time of the entire week is Friday night after midnight. Chatzot. Not literally 12 o'clock. Midnight, it could be a different time. But, however, they say that working people twice a week, that's to make it regular, just to have it regular. But, of course, people, it's not, nothing is in stone anymore these days. Not at all. Because of the level of promiscuity in the world, there's no restrictions. Really, there isn't. To save a man from spilling seed, it's a huge deal. 
So therefore, the rabbis were much lenient in terms of restrictions. And, you know, it can't be, okay, if it's not Friday night, what do you do the rest of the week? Take a lot of cold showers and run around the block a lot of times. The issue, though, is that the wife is not allowed to ask outright from the husband, I want. It's tricky. The, the man can, but the woman cannot. It's just part of the modesty relationship. So there's different techniques on that. That, of course, the man has to have open eyes and an open mind and an open heart. That if he comes home from work and she's dressed all nice and the candle's lit and there's dinner set and it's a nice setting, that means wake up, okay? You can't go watch the game, eat popcorn and go to sleep. Wake yourself up. That means, okay, so obviously she might wear things that might give you that sign. She's not allowed to ask outright, but she could do things that there's a sign. Now, I'm going to give you one great rule that I heard a couple did. I don't didn't do this, but a couple had a teddy bear on the bed. It was always like, you know, like you have pillows. You know, there was a bear. The bear had clothes on. So if, they, if the husband saw there was no clothes on the bed, there you go. <laughs> there's no clothes on the bear. Okay, I got it. Got the message. It's very hard for men sometimes to read the message. Anytime. There's no real restrictions. The daytime, they do say to stray from because there's so many noises and it's very distracting. There's noises outside. There's construction worker. There's gardeners. There's dogs. There's people. So they could be very distracting. But the rabbis have said even permitted that as well. There's no restrictions anymore because of the promiscuity of the time. What about the light that comes through the window? You try to block it as much as possible. You can't block it 100%. You do as much as you can. And you make sure you're covered. Okay. And if you haven't done it in the right way, which could have created this uh, bad results. The rebellious children, we'll call them, quote unquote. Is there a particular way of doing teshuva for this or just? Tikkun Klali of Rabbi Nachman, the 10 Psalms of Rabbi Nachman. That fix it. There's obviously so much here I, I'm clueless on. So I, I am looking forward to bringing you on again to learn everything we need to know. I'm sure the audience is as well. But I do appreciate you sharing this with us, Rabbi. What you shared is quite eye-opening and definitely, I think, gives us, all of us men and and the women, this is definitely not going to be a men's only episode like the last one. There's a lot we can do here to make that act more holy. And I I believe these are also the things that bring us closer as a, a couple as well, correct? And when we do, when we bring ourselves closer as a couple in that holiness and that commitment, so then we actually take out the batteries from the matrix and then we bring rectification to the entire world because it's the divine presence. We'll have to talk more. I don't know whether me thinking about Rabbi Nachman or Rabbi Luzodo or the Rambam uh, before intimacy is something I won't be able to get into my head. We'll cover that the next time. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I appreciate your time. So much more. Okay, we'll get to it. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.